Looking for practical information to help you make decisions about your diagnosis, whether DCIS, early or metastatic breast cancer? BCNA's My Journey features articles, webcasts, videos and podcasts about breast cancer during treatment and beyond to help you, your friends and family as you progress through your journey. It also features a symptom tracker to help you manage the changing symptoms you may encounter during your own breast cancer experience. My Journey. Download the app or sign up online at myjourney.org.au. Let's be upfront about the side effects of breast cancer treatment. Most people during and for a few weeks after treatment will experience side effects, but for some, the side effects are ongoing or can become permanent. These are called long-term or ongoing effects. Others can develop what's known as late effects, those that might surface months, even years after treatment, which can cause anxiety for some people. Side effects can range from being a minor inconvenience to severely impacting your quality of life. In this episode of Upfront, we're going to talk about some of the side effects of chemotherapy, radiotherapy, surgery and hormone therapy, what to watch for and what you can do to avoid or minimise them. Joining us is Dr Belinda Yeo, a medical oncologist and clinician scientist who, through work at the Olivia Newton-John Cancer Research Institute, is investigating ways to reduce the toxins for people undergoing treatment. Also with us is Pauline Preble, who six months after completing active treatment for stage 3 invasive breast cancer, suffered some serious and lasting side effects. Welcome to you both. Thanks very much. So, Belinda, if we start with you, can you explain what ongoing and late effects of breast cancer treatment are and how are they different to the side effects experienced while having treatment? So I guess the key thing we tend to think about with ongoing or late effects is these are things that either continue to occur despite the fact that our treatment may well have stopped, so chemotherapy may be finished, but a side effect that may have developed during chemotherapy persists and sometimes even gets worse even after treatment stops. Um, Or you may have late effects that actually don't occur at all and, as you mentioned in your introduction, happen months or even many years after treatment and they're not always immediately directly linked to the previous treatment, but we certainly know that these can happen and they need to be watched out for. It's, I guess, a normal assumption to think that if you haven't got side effects either during or straight after your treatment that it would feel a bit odd for them to come what six months later yeah absolutely absolutely I mean I think we, we emphasize a lot about the treatment on treatment effects and I think we concentrate a lot when counseling patients before we start treatment but I, I believe we do underestimate and don't we don't prioritize the late effects and I think part of that is sometimes because the conversation, there's enough to talk about. Hopefully we do mention them, but I think we often put them to the side and think this is something that we'll hopefully think about later. Pauline, is it, share with us your experience. You'd actually been six months post. Yeah, so I'd um, finished active treatment in early June and it was uh, December of that year that um, just something that I thought was quite you know, nothing to be worried about. I, I passed out at home laying on the bed, um, mentioned it to my GP and she did some tests and found out I had cardiomyopathy. So what is, explain that to us in layman's terms, what um, does that mean? So heart muscle dysfunction is basically what it is. So um, it comes in lots of different shapes and forms and different severities. Um, 
for me it just means that the, the chemo has impacted the way my heart pumps blood through my body, basically. Belinda, is that common? Uh, it's not common, but it is a well-known potential toxicity, particularly of the anthracycline chemotherapies, which are a very standard chemotherapy that we do give in breast cancer. In fact, we're trying very hard to see whether we can forego giving anthracycline. There's a lot of work trying to work out if we can do just as well without giving anthracycline, and some of our regimes are doing that. But yes, it is a, it is a toxicity that we know about and we do warn patients about. So just on, let's go to chemotherapy. Uh, quite often we hear about chemo brain. What, what actually is that? That's a great question. I mean, perhaps Pauline might give you a better answer than I, I do. I mean, um, there's a lot in the literature about chemo brain, but I think patients all describe it slightly differently. And I think it is a very personal experience. Um, and I think it's something that can happen during treatment and certainly can happen even after treatment has stopped. And the way patients describe it to, to me is, you know, they feel fuzzy, they're certainly not as sharp, they feel their concentration is affected, their memory may be affected, um, and they just don't feel, uh, you know, as they did before we started treatment. And I think it's complicated because uh, there may be multiple reasons um, why these things are being experienced. And so with something like chemo brain, is that likely to be uh, an ongoing or can it be a late effect as well? I think there's debate about whether it's ongoing. Certainly, um, I, we, we certainly counsel patients that we expect that these changes will hopefully improve, but I do certainly have experience of patients where for even months or years after treatment, um, they feel as though this this cloudiness or this uh, you know loss of their concentration is, is never really fully recovered, and it's you know it's got the name chemo brain, but I suspect there's actually you know other things involved there. Um, we know that hormone therapy um, can affect the way you know our minds work. Um, depleting women of estrogen at young ages can can certainly affect our cognition, and I think there are multiple other factors. So yes. Pauline, did you experience chemo I certainly brain? did. I have become the queen of lists. I have a, a notepad at my bedside table because it'll be like two in the morning, I'll wake up and think, oh, I've got to get the meat out of the freezer. So I have to write it down because otherwise it'll get to tea time the following night and I'll go, oh, what was I meant to do? That's right, forgot to get the meat out of the freezer. Really simple things. Um, do you honestly, do you think that was the difference though, chemo brain, or could that just be an age thing? Could, well, <laughs> thank you. Thank you. My children will be happy about that. Um, no, I, I definitely did notice a difference. I was the sort of person that didn't need to diarise everything because I could pick it up, bang, bang, bang. Um, I got to the point where even at work I would have to write out a list of everything I needed to get done in a day and, because I'd forget something and often it was something important. Or you'd go to the supermarket for two things. You'd come home with ten. None of them, neither of them. No, you know, the two things you needed were not there. Um, or getting halfway through a sentence and trying to pick up what the next word is and thinking, oh, what is it you call it, you know, and you're fumbling with it. I wasn't like that before. Um, but out of all the side effects, I suppose it's the one that's easiest to get around by, you know, writing it and having visual cues for things all the time. So. And, and Belinda, from a medical point of view, is that something like what Pauline was doing, making lists? Is that the way around it? Is it likely to improve? Do you come out of that phase, like if you've got that effect, for some does it return? Yeah, I mean I think there's a lot of data out there to show that if you have 
um, major um, illness impacting on you, whether that's from the illness itself or from the treatment that you have, these things can occur. And, you know, we say hopefully this is reversible. I think the studies on follow-up after, you know, in inverted commas, chemo brain are really not very well controlled because there's so many factors and um, it's very hard to measure these things. Um, but strategies like you know, keeping lists and trying to navigate around the world that you were used to functioning like before you developed this, I think is, you know, is very sensible. But you would hope that this is something that would, would improve. And is there a way that you can minimise something like chemo brain? Look, I think um, certainly all of our toxicities of chemotherapy, and I guess we're talking predominantly about chemotherapy here, we know that patients who um, are able to keep fit during treatment, they're able to eat well, they're able to try and maintain, you know, as normal a life as possible. And that's a really, you know, difficult word to use, I guess, in what is a often extremely difficult time. But I think in the old days, we, you know, said to patients, listen, you're going to have a lot of treatment, it's going to be really toxic, let's just get through it and we'll pick up the pieces at the end. We don't do that at all now. In fact, we really try and maintain, um, you know, physical fitness, a good diet. We don't want uh, patients to put on weight and all of these things absolutely no doubt help patients deal with the side effects and I think do prevent some of the side effects that you would otherwise see. Um, baseline health problems beforehand and age, these things are important when you're making decisions about what appropriate treatment is with the patient with you. So one of the other real um, very common effects of chemotherapy is what, fatigue and uh, what are some other things? Neuropathy? Yeah, so so neuropathy, you're affecting the nerves in the fingers and toes um, and that may... So that's a tingling, is it? So it could be yeah. a tingling or pins and needles. It, it could even develop into actually the loss of feeling in the fingers and affecting your function, like doing up buttons. Um, these are things that we see with multiple of our, again, chemotherapy agents. Chemotherapy is getting a bad rap here. Yeah. But um, the taxanes would be the most common, so drugs like paclitaxel. And this is a really challenging um, toxicity as well because uh, it develops in some patients they don't get it at all in other patients they develop it quite early on in treatment and this is also a side effect as we discussed where you can stop the treatment today and it continue to get worse even after you stop and unfortunately it doesn't always resolve completely so again I go back to the old days but you know we didn't realize I think that the longevity of this particular side effects and we would push patients through treatment we are now very sensitive to this side effect we take it extremely seriously Patients, uh, in my experience, get, you know, sick of people asking them, the nursing staff, you know, the medical staff, everyone around them, you know, how are your fingers and toes? But it's because we often have to either dose reduce or even sometimes stop the treatment early because of this, because there are many patients who have been cured from breast cancer who come in with still long persisting pins and needles in fingers and toes that really does affect their quality of life for the rest of their life. Yes. So I think it's worth noting at this point that a doctor now probably even more so, will consider those side effects even though they then 
decide to still proceed with the chemotherapy. So it's part of a, a whole approach, isn't it? A- absolutely, that's right. And so when you're deciding uh, about whether a treatment uh, has a significant benefit or we feel it has a significant benefit, we always need to weigh up the benefit versus the side effects. And for example, if a patient already has this particular condition, perhaps from diabetes or you know other medical problems, then you know you would seriously need to consider whether the benefit of giving this drug did outweigh the potential to make that worse. Uh, and that really comes very much down to that, that first discussion with the patient. BCNA's Helpline provides a free, confidential phone and email service for people diagnosed with breast cancer. BCNA's experienced team will help with your questions and concerns and provide relevant resources and services. Call 1800 500 258 or email contact at bcna.org.au. Pauline, you've got a, a long-lasting side effect now with your, your heart. How are you... What does that mean for you now? Um, it, it's impacted my, my life on a daily basis. Um, I don't have the energy levels that I had anymore. Um, in recent months, I've had to stop working while they're trying to figure out a way to stop it getting any worse. Um, I'm very lucky in that my medical team have got uh, lots of other people that they're they're talking to and resourcing to try and find out more answers um, because they think that the chemo's actually affected the mitochondria in my cells and so I'm not using oxygen properly and so all sorts of other things. But um, it just means that I'm, uh, you know, trivial things. I don't bath or shower unless there's someone home because I've passed out in the shower before and hurt myself. So little things that before I took for granted, now I have to be more thoughtful about how I go about things. So is, is that the number one side effect that you quite often faint still? Um, no, I'm pretty good with that now. I, I usually get onto it before it winds up in me on the floor. Um, but it's just, yeah, fatigue and breathlessness. If I um, go up a flight of stairs, I can't breathe by the time I get to the top. So, um, you know, if I'm uh, mucking around at home with our kids and, you know, we're dancing or whatever, I get to the end of it and I'm like, oh, I need to sit down. Whereas before we would have been going, you know, all night. And as we mentioned before, it was six months after your active treatment. So it must have been a real shock for you. And was it mentioned to you at at any point or was it in passing? I remember um, it was mentioned when I first saw the oncologist and for me uh, the diagnosis from diagnosis to to chemo was only a few days so it was mentioned but at the time I was in a whirlwind of a million other thoughts and it's like yep whatever just do it just do it Um, didn't really give any thought to what it meant and what he said in hindsight I think um those early appointments it would have been really good if I'd taken someone else in with me other than my husband who was also in you know that state of shock taken that extra person in because um at one of my surgical appointments I took one of the McGrath nurses with me and I didn't realize how valuable that was until after we came out and I sat there and I said what did he say about whatever and she was able to debrief with me and it's someone that's not on the inside involved in the same way. So yeah, in hindsight, I wish I'd done that so that we could have then had a better discussion afterwards about how it would impact things. I think you've touched on a really important point there is that when someone is initially diagnosed with breast cancer, that initial reaction is to get it out. Let's just do whatever we need to do to 
remove the breast cancer and whatever treatment. Do you think you would have done things apart from having a, a nurse with you as far as treatment if you'd known that this was going to be the long-term effect? Oh, look, definitely. I um, Chemo wasn't particularly kind to me um, and so I, I, you know, was unwell during chemo and what have you. But um, so what did I do? I rested all the time and I didn't feel like eating so I didn't eat too much and I lost weight. All of those things in hindsight, I think... If I'd actually thought about it, I would have done things differently. It's, and it's what you were saying before is really sort of keeping... It's a whole approach, isn't it, Belinda? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, developing a cardiomyopathy, obviously, you know, had we have known that would happen, of course, we, we wouldn't want to give anyone that again. And in fact, that's what we're trying to do now. I mean, sadly, um, but this is good, there is a cardio-oncology, you know, um, service now being developed and worked in places, certainly locally and internationally, trying to, I guess, the most important thing is let's predict who is at risk of this and let's try and prevent it by not giving drugs that are going to cause these. And the difficulty in breast cancer is, you know, we wouldn't give these drugs if they didn't help. And so we've really got to do better and work out who really needs them and who is going to be as safe as possible. And we're never going to get that 100% right. Um, I would love to be here and say, you know, we don't need to give chemotherapy at all. And hopefully one day we will be. Um, but I think we are getting better at giving chemotherapy and I think we are starting to think very hard and doing trials to really look at where the benefits are of the more toxic agents and where we can potentially spare patients um, and knowing about pre-existing medical conditions and patients age all of this needs to come in to that original uh, discussion and you know your interesting point about being diagnosed and treated and there is that fury around you know some would say isn't that fantastic you got treated so quickly but you know getting the treatment right is the most important thing. You know, while everyone wants to do things quickly, sometimes it's not the speed, it's actually making sure we do things right. And breast cancer is such, you know, it's a common disease, but it's a bunch of a lot of different diseases and every patient is different. And that's why it often takes us time to make the right decision. I think you've just touched on a point that it really um, shows how important it is to share pre-existing conditions, sensitivities, that sort of stuff so you can help your team better track what is a side effect of your treatment and what it might have been an exacerbation of a pre-existing. So uh, yep. quite and often we fill out forms and, and not really think about, you know, previous this, previous that. Um, and like you said, Pauline, when they go through the possible side effects, you're so focused on the immediate that you're That's not it, yeah. possibly paying enough attention. So Belinda, how do we know when something might be a side effect of your treatment, particularly if it's after active treatment and when it might be something else? As in when it might be the breast cancer returning? It I mean, be the breast cancer returning or it might be another condition. Yeah, I mean, this is a really difficult one because the an there's no magic answer to that. And, and, you know, one of the most common questions that patients ask me at the end of their treatment is, right, OK, how do I know if the breast cancer is back? How do I know if this ache or pain? And it's hard because I don't think you ever know. And I guess... Um, that suspicion breast cancer is a frustratingly unpredictable disease sometimes. So what I usually t 
talk to patients about is to say if you get a symptom that doesn't make sense or you get a pain that you can't explain and it doesn't go away, then, you know, I invite them to come back. That's what we're here for. I mean, we don't scan patients every year when you're well other than doing routine imaging of the breast because currently, and this might change, uh, currently there isn't evidence to do that at a population-based level. But that's why I say to patients, I'm here. So if there's something that, you know, you notice that you're worried about, you should come back. And I have to say, you know, most of the time it still isn't breast cancer. And it might be one of these rare late toxicities. You know, shortness of breath can be a presentation of a lot of different things, including, you know, problems of the heart. Um, And so I think you do always have to think about it. And I think having a good relationship with the GP and your specialist right from the beginning of your diagnosis is really important because um, we walk through the journey together from on treatment, off treatment and in, in follow-up. So, um, And whilst you may not be seeing your specialist, you know, a decade after treatment, um, if it is a concern and it could be a possibility, I think it's very reasonable to come back into the service and have that discussion. So... If we're moving on to radiotherapy, what are some of the most common ongoing effects of radiotherapy? Um, I mean, skin changes can certainly be ongoing um, and persistent um, and changes in the site. So, you know, breast shape may be. Um, We know that potentially we can damage tissue underlying where radiotherapy goes. So, for example, the lung underneath or potentially... Um, causing problems with the the heart once again, particularly for left-sided radiotherapy, um, and so the arteries on the left side of the heart. So these are things, again, again whilst rare, um, are possibilities for long-term or late effects of radiotherapy. And again, coming back to things like previous smoking or current smoking certainly do increase the risk of these late effects being possible. Pauline, you had radiotherapy? Yeah, I did, yep. So I'd had a mastectomy and um, so the radiotherapy was a bit different. They had to protect me in a different way because there wasn't as much there in terms of flesh. Um, I had a few issues at the time. Kind of strange. I had... um, What, fatigue and... Yeah, fatigue didn't... It it got me, but it was only, you know, within a couple of months that had resolved. Um, I got quite nasty blisters, but because I've got no feeling from the mastectomy, I didn't notice I had them. And one of the nurses picked it up and she said, oh, it's probably a good thing I couldn't feel them. Um, But nothing, for me, nothing really long-lasting from the radiotherapy. I mean, my skin does look different, but I figure that's a small price to pay, really. So, Belinda, is pain a a possible issue following radiotherapy? Yeah, so pain, I mean, and I guess perhaps the most common would be be breast pain so I guess in in slightly different to the setting you were describing but this can be common I mean after surgery um, after radiotherapy and I would actually argue even after the endocrine therapy that we give or hormone therapy um, pain after procedures is very common and for some ladies this is an ongoing problem for the rest of their lives and um, it can be short, sharp pain that comes and goes at a bit unpredictable um, intervals, or it can be pain that really is quite debilitating. And, and sometimes that does um, involve introducing medical treatments or trying um, particular um, blocks or acupuncture and things like this. I know a lot of patients do use these to try and help with pain. Pain is a very personal thing. So it's what is painful to some person is not painful as painful to someone else. When do you 
reach out and say, I'm not getting the answers? Like if you're not getting the answers or an explanation for what you're experiencing, no matter what side effect you've, you've got, is there a next uh, stage? Do you always have to accept if a doctor says to you, um, no, that's got nothing to do with it? Well, I would say no. Yeah. <laughs> I would I would say, you know, if you, you know, we don't always have the answers. I mean, you know, I don't always know what's going on, but if you've got an ongoing problem, then um, it is absolutely worth seeking um, out. And remember your, you know, maybe I don't have the answer as the oncologist, but there's a whole team of us. And the great thing is we do work in a team. And so, um, you know, many minds are better than one. And you do have to sometimes think outside the square because you may have seen one, one thing happen, you know, a hundred times in a row in this might be different. Um, so no, I think you you continue to try and find the answer because you know these things can be very frustrating and very debilitating, and they can affect your quality of life so that you can't move forward. The breast cancer may well have been many years ago, and um, yeah. So uh, I mean, that's easy for me to answer. Maybe you should answer that, Pauline. <laughs> Look, I've been really lucky. I've got an amazing GP who I touch base with regularly and she's across all of the people that are looking after my treatment because I've got lots of people involved now. Um, and if she's not happy with something, she'll make contact herself. And so if I've got a concern, I can just ring her and say, what do I do about this or that? And she'll say, let me ring one of them and find out. I've also got um, a really dynamic medical team behind me who, um, you know, when my oncologist said, look, I've done some research. He actually pulled up the research that he'd done and he said to me, look, I've found this, this and this. I've never dealt with it personally. Um, leave it with me and I will take it to a few colleagues. And he took it to some colleagues here in Melbourne and one of them said, oh, yes, I've had a patient that's got the same thing. Um, so now suddenly we've got some idea of what the next step will be. And then he said there's an international breast cancer conference um, later in the year. He's going to actually ask around there as well. So must be really comforting to feel like you're being heard. Yes. And even, uh, you know, when I was um, at my, my heart specialist a couple of weeks ago, he called in his senior and said, I'd just like you to run through this data. So I had this other person I'd never met before, but obviously very knowledgeable, go through everything and say, oh, we need to try this, this and this, and here's what I suggest. So for me, um, very comforting to know that it doesn't rest with any one person, that they're all in the loop together, that they're working as a team. So it doesn't matter if it's the heart guys or the GP or the oncology team. They're all working together and they all communicate well so that the outcome will be you know, a consensus. It's not one person making decisions. Mm. I think another uh, platform to bounce off what your experience is the BCNA online network, yes. which, which is uh, people who are going through what you've been through or are about to go through, and it's a really good wealth of information. Have you used the online network? I have, yeah. I, um, I would read it most days just to, you know, catch up on, on various people that I follow on the network. Um, but it's, it's a great way for you to put something out there and then see what responses you get back. And people have said, and, and I've actually commented on other people's um, things when they've said, oh, I felt this or that, and I'll encourage them to go to a GP or touch base with an oncology team and say, this is what's happened. Because sometimes you feel like, you know, a bit of a, a tool, oh, should I be worrying about this? You know, is this a bit over the top? It's like the day that I got diagnosed, my first words to my GP is, 
you're going to think I'm over the top with this, but... And she's like, no, don't ever think that it's too much. You know, it's not an embarrassing thing. Just get it checked. So now I think post-treatment, uh, the same applies. It can be easy to, to fob it off and go, oh, I'm just going to look like a hypochondriac. You know, I take all these pills and there's always I'm always whinging there's something wrong. But you can't afford to ignore any of it. So if you build up a good rapport with your medical team, then it's easy to go, just want to mention this has happened. Is that okay? And they can say yes or no. And if they say no, you can go away happy. If they say we might get it checked out, again, at least then you have that confidence that it's being dealt with appropriately. And I think that's absolutely the kind of approach that I would hope we would have is that you want to have that open door policy. Like I say, when you're well, you know, we see you infrequently once a year, maybe twice a year with the surgeons. But um, I always say to patients, you know, if you're worried about something, chances are it's not going to be breast cancer. But if you don't come and ask me and we don't work through it, you know, maybe we're going to miss something but more times than likely this is going to fester and then you're not really going to know the answer and you know a good example of that is you know we cause a lot of problems with menopausal side effects particularly for ladies who are already perhaps they've been diagnosed around their age of what would have been menopause or they're going through menopause at the same time that we're giving them endocrine therapy and oftentimes you know, we don't know, is this their natural menopause causing this? Is this our treatment? Oftentimes it's a bit of both. And 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 I'm a huge fan of drug holidays just to see because even we may well end up back on that same agent. But if, if, if you and I both have an answer as to why these side effects are there or how much is contributing from the treatment, you can then make clever and, and useful decisions about where to go. So, um, yeah. So don't suffer in silence. Yeah, absolutely. So, Belinda, there are so many side effects that are possible uh, with treatment and we've touched on pain and with surgery, lymphedema, that's a a massive issue, but uh, we are going to cover that separately in another podcast. What about bones? Yeah, so I I think this is a really big issue and actually becoming a a very central issue because we now have some very good treatment for bones. Um, Bone thinning, so this may be something called osteopenia or even frank osteoporosis where the bone architecture is um, changed from treatment. That can be because of treatments rendering women menopausal before their natural menopause, So, and usually that could be chemotherapy-induced. But then we also give hormone treatments to either keep women menopausal or in fact deplete them of estrogen to try and stop feeding any breast cancer cells if they're there. And unfortunately there is a risk of bone loss over time. Um, It can happen early within the first year of treatment or it can actually be a delayed effect. Um, And we know how important this is and what's really fascinating is that some of the drugs that are used in osteoporosis um, obviously not only can help to prevent this bone loss but there's some exciting data coming out to show that in postmenopausal ladies at, at least these actually help to reduce the risk of the breast cancer coming back. So we're get, becoming very friendly with our endocrinologists um, who often see our patients at the same time as we do and hopefully we're being very proactive about this but that's where things like exercise particularly weight bearing exercise is extremely important. I say it's your best friend. I say that on a daily basis. We thank you for joining us on Upfront, which is a proud production of Breast Cancer Network Australia. This episode on the ongoing and late side effects of cancer treatment was made with thanks to Cancer Australia through the Supporting Women in Rural Areas Diagnosed with Breast Cancer Program. If you'd like to know more, there are links to resources on our website, bcna.org.au. And don't forget to take a look at the My Journey online tool, which can be tailored to give you 
information on your specific diagnosis and treatment. The Upfront podcast series is one of many ways BCNA offers support. Please contact someone in your health team with any individual concerns. The opinions of our guests are welcome, but not necessarily shared by BCNA. And we'd love to know your thoughts too, so leave us a message on our feedback page. I'm Kelly Curtin. Thanks for being Upfront with us.